following is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Good morning. Welcome once again to Trinity Grace. So glad you're here, especially if you're a guest with us today. Today, we are going to be jumping back into our summer series looking at the book of Proverbs. And we're going to be wrapping up this book in the next two weeks. And then through the fall season, our plan is to turn our attention to the New Testament book of Acts. And so we'll be looking at the New Testament book of Acts from September through the Advent season in December. As many of you know, Proverbs is primarily a book about wisdom. And we've defined wisdom as skill in the art of godly living. Wisdom is knowing what to do in the gray areas of life where there's really no clear-cut direction on what is right and what is wrong from God's word. Wisdom is knowing how to navigate the complexities of living in this fallen world in such a way that it honors God and brings blessing to other people. And we've mentioned that this book lends itself to a practical examination of different themes. Proverbs, as you know, it doesn't read like a narrative or a letter. It's a conglomeration of pithy statements that touch on lots of different topics. And this morning, we're going to be giving our attention to what the Proverbs has to say about one of the most distinguishing characteristics of a follower of Jesus. We're going to be touching on a topic that is a cardinal Christian virtue. It's a topic that C.S. Lewis writes about in his book, Mere Christianity, by saying this. He says, There's one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. This morning, we're going to be touching on the topic of pride and its opposite virtue, humility. The battle in our hearts between pride and humility is something that we experience on a daily basis. Just recently, we took one of our kids to the doctor so that they could schedule an outpatient surgery that needed to be done before the school year started. So we made sure that we were on top of things. Back in the spring, we scheduled the right appointments, made sure that we talked to the right people. We were given paperwork to complete, and we did it quickly, and we sent it back in. And we were told that the office was going to reach back out to us and schedule this surgery before school starts. Well, the weeks passed by, and we didn't hear anything. So I finally called the doctor. Rachel called the doctor. She called the doctor's office to learn that the office staff had made a mistake. Apparently, there was um, somebody sick the day that we turned in our paperwork, and it was completely overlooked. And due to their oversight, we couldn't get into surgery until Christmas time. Well, as you can imagine, it was a frustrating experience to say the least. And instead of chalking it up to an honest mistake and getting on with life, which I should have done, I found myself stewing over this mistake. I wanted to get the actual doctor on the phone to let him know that he needed a better staff. I wanted someone to be punished for this oversight that was costing us so much. And then I started thinking about it even more in my mind. Don't they know who we are? Don't they know who we are at that office? Does he know how lucky he is to have us as patients? We show up on time, every time, never cancel an appointment. We never carry a balance. In fact, we pay cash for the services that he provides every time. We're always compliant with his diagnosis. We don't go back and Google it. You know, we don't double check him. 
We believe that He cares for us. How could He do this to someone like us? Doesn't He know how great we are? Doesn't He know how lucky He is to have us as patients? After all, we could take our business somewhere else if He makes a mistake like this again. That's a small snapshot of what was going on in my heart and mind a few weeks back. I know it's shocking, shocking to hear that. And what it was at its root was just flat out pride. It was masked well, but it was me thinking more highly of myself than I ought. It was me wanting to exert my rights. It was me wanting to exercise power. It was me wanting to make sure that people knew that I was right and they were wrong and they needed to pay for it. And pride can be poisonous. C.S. Lewis calls pride a cancer of the soul, destroying our ability to love God and others well. One author said, Pride slays thanksgiving, but a humble mind is the soil out of which thanks naturally grow. A proud man is seldom a grateful man, for he never thinks he gets as much as he deserves. Well, that was me. We desperately need humility. And Proverbs knows this and seeks to give us wisdom when it comes to humility. And so you follow along as I read some selected Proverbs that touch on pride and humility. It's in your bulletin, printed in your bulletin, beginning in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. The Lord tears down the house of the proud but maintains the widow's boundaries. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor in life. It is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. And then a parable from Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. Now, Jesus told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then 1 Peter chapter 5 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Well, this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. I wonder how many of you would consider yourselves sports fans. 
If you are, you know that we are now in a no man's land of sports excitement. Nothing's on TV these days. Basketball is over. Football has not yet started. And baseball's kind of right in the middle of their really long season. And it can be pretty boring. But in just a few weeks, we'll be back into football season. And there's going to be lots of rejoicing. My Tennessee volunteers will be undefeated at some point before they lose their first game. And while it's been pretty quiet on the sports news front, something did pop up a few weeks ago that was interesting. NFL football players were reporting back to training camp from the offseason. And it's become a bit of a competition over the past few years to see who can make the flashiest arrival to training camp. In fact, this past year, Jalen Ramsey, who's the Jacksonville Jaguars cornerback, arrived to training camp in the back of a Brinks armored truck full of cash. He stepped out of the Brinks armored truck carrying money in his hands as he made his way into training camp. Pretty flashy. Not to be outdone, Antonio Brown took it a step further, and he arrived at the Oakland Raiders training camp in a hot air balloon filming himself as he floated down onto camp from above. Can you imagine? Let's say tomorrow you make that kind of entrance into your office or place of work, coming in on a hot air balloon or an armored truck full of cash. It's funny to imagine. And I get that it's supposed to be entertaining. It's supposed to attract attention. But there's something inside my heart that looks at it and thinks it's off-putting. It's, there's something off-putting about the kind of shameless self-promotion that has become an increasing part of the culture in the NFL, especially with wide receivers. It seems as though there's become a preoccupation with promoting a larger-than-life personal brand, showing off, showing people how spectacular you are. And these kind of prideful antics actually have the opposite effect of what's intended, I think. Because instead of honor, you actually look at these things and they're fun. I don't want to be curmudgeonly, um, you know, or, or shame them. They're fun. But instead of bringing honor, it actually comes off as kind of shallow. And instead of showing power, you actually begin to quietly wonder why they need to show off so much. It's a picture of modern day pride, albeit in the fun world of sport. But it's not far from what we see the Proverbs warn against over and over again this morning. In Proverbs 11:2, we read, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. And it's good to define our terms as we get started. There are many ways we could define and describe pride this morning, and hopefully it'll become more obvious as we talk more this morning. But a quick definition of pride from the Bible would be being wise in your own eyes. Another definition from the Bible is thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. It's believing that you are self-sufficient. Pride is believing that you are the one in control, that you are the one that wields all the power. C.S. Lewis says that it was through pride that the devil became the devil. And he actually calls pride the anti-God state of mind. Pride is actually the sin that destroyed Adam and Eve at the very beginning of the Bible, if you think about it. Pride is the sin that plunged humanity into misery and brokenness. The devil came and tempted Adam and Eve to believe that they could be like God, that they could be self-sufficient, 
that they could be the powerful ones, that they could be in control. And in Genesis 3, we see that the devil successfully flips the created script. He comes and he causes Adam to believe that Adam is in control and God is not. He, he causes Adam to believe that he is big and God is small. And that's been mankind's issue ever since, a struggle with pride. And as we think about our struggle with pride, there's a few characteristics about pride that come to mind. A few things that we should consider. First, pride is self-dependence. It's self-dependent. Pride convinces us that we don't need other people. We don't need God. We don't need grace, which is an undeserved gift. We can make it on our own. We can pay our own way. I don't need your charity. I don't need your gifts. Pride is self-dependent. Second characteristic that stands out about pride is that it's self-righteous. Pride causes you to look down on others who don't know as much or don't do it as right or aren't as moral as you. And we can be prideful about the smallest, most insignificant things, can't we? I mean, some of us have recycling pride, right? We're proud about the fact that we use the blue trash bin at home. You ever go to somebody's house and ask, where's your recycling You do recycle, don't you? We can be proud about our schooling choices. Looking down on those who would ever make the mistake of sending their kids to government school. Government school. Don't they know it's just an avenue for brainwashing? But then on the other hand, we can also look down on those who choose homeschool. I can't believe that they wouldn't want to engage the culture with the gospel. Don't they know we're called to take the love of Jesus to everyone, the unbelievers? We can be proud of the way we eat. Is it organic? Is it free range? Is it grass fed? Does it have high fructose corn syrup? I would never put that in my body. After all, it is a temple. We're proud of our frugality sometimes. Maybe you hear someone who went on an amazing vacation. They enjoyed God's creation and they come back and share their experience and you hear the response, it must be nice. We send our money to feeding orphans in Africa. We can even be proud about our understanding of the gospel itself. They just don't get the grace of the gospel like I do. Pride is self-righteous. It's convincing ourselves that we know best and those who don't live like us are wrong. The third characteristic of pride is that it's self-absorbed. Pride is always asking the question, how am I doing? How am I doing? It never asks the question, how are you doing? It's all about how is my bank account? How is my health? How is my house? How are my kids? How is my security? It's a focus on loving and serving yourself. I even know a pastor, a pastor who speaks on Sundays and he's not always primarily concerned with God's glory and serving other people. Believe it or not, this pastor is sometimes concerned about how he's doing. Completely self-absorbed at times. I know that pastor really well. On top of all that, pride is competitive in nature. C.S. Lewis touches on this in his excellent essay on pride where he says this, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else become equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. 
In the end, pride destroys the potential for community and friendship. Derek Kidner, who's a scholar who wrote a great commentary on Proverbs, says, The special evil of pride is that it opposes the first principle of wisdom, which is fear of the Lord. And it also opposes the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor. In other words, when you're proud, you're at odds with God, you're at odds with others, you're at odds with yourself. And so, as we begin to scratch the surface, we can see that we desperately need humility. If we have any hope of receiving God's love, any hope of serving others, any hope of relating to ourselves in healthy and proper ways, we need humility. And the good news for us this morning is that Proverbs wants to invite us back to the humble path, making it attractive, showing us that it's how you and I were created to live. I once heard a friend say something that has stuck with me and rattled around in my heart and mind over the years as he was speaking on pride, he said this, there aren't many problems in life that you have that humility won't fix. There aren't many problems in your life that you have that humility won't fix. That could be a modern day proverb itself. And my friend's encouragement, it squares pretty well with how the Proverbs talks about and invites us into a life of humility. The author of Proverbs wants to invite us to live in accord with our design. We were designed to be dependent creatures. Humility is basic to the ways of God. Pride, it humiliates us and humility, it honors us. That's what the Proverbs say that we just read. Pride is our greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. And so knowing this, how do you step on this pathway towards humility? Well, Proverbs encourages us to begin where it often does with the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 3 verse 7 says, Be not wise in your own eyes, which is pride, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And in Proverbs 22 verse 4, it says, The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor in life. In Proverbs, we see that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom It's appropriate fear that goes hand in hand with humility. We'll begin to move down the path of humility when the false story that was written at the fall, that we are big and God is small, when that story is flipped upside down and we start understanding that God is big and we are small. When we begin to fear the Lord, that's the first step to true humility. And the idea of fear is interesting. But it makes sense when you think about it. You know who I don't fear? Who I don't fear? I don't fear my kids. Sometimes I'm fearful for them, but I never fear my kids. I don't fear those who are weaker than me. I don't fear those who have less power than me. I don't fear those who are less knowledgeable than me. And the question the Proverbs continually asks is, do you fear God? Do you appropriately respect and honor him as your creator, the one who is all-powerful and all-knowing, the one who controls all things? As we respect and honor him, as we look to him to provide, as we fear him appropriately, we can begin to grow in humility. As God becomes big and we become small, sanity is restored to how we view ourselves in God, and we're beginning to live more in line with our design as creatures who are accountable to and dependent upon the creator. 
We grow in humility by constantly reminding ourselves that we are limited creatures. That's what the Proverbs is doing in a way. Inviting us to live as limited creatures. And if you hear nothing else this morning, I really want you to hear this. Inviting us to live as limited creatures. Inviting us back to live according to the way we are designed, where God is big and we are small. In other words, the book of Proverbs is inviting us to live in a reality. Did you know that you are limited? You're limited. We don't like to think about it very much, if we're honest, but it's reality. You are limited as a wife, as a husband, as a professional, as a parent, as a friend, you are limited. And embracing your limits is the first step in the life-giving grace of humility. When it comes to who you are as a spouse, you have limited love. You have limited knowledge of what your spouse is thinking. You have limited emotional bandwidth from which to draw from. When it comes to who you are as a professional, you have limited time. You have limited skill. You have limited resources. When it comes to who you are as a parent, you have limited wisdom, limited patience, limited control. When it comes to who you are as a friend, you have limited understanding and limited empathy and limited encouragement. And we need to embrace our limits. You are a human being a creature, a limited person who has limited time and talent and love and affection and knowledge. And some folks will not like these limits. Most of the time, you don't appreciate these limits. And the world definitely doesn't honor these limits, especially when our limits affect other people. But living in light of our limitations allows God to be God. And it puts us in places that are good for us because God has to show up. God has to provide. Embracing our limits keeps us humble. It keeps us in our proper place. As a limited person, you were created to abide. You were created to be dependent. Being limited is not a problem. It's not a concern. It's the way that we were created, the way that we were designed to live. And as limited, dependent people, we are needy. We need someone bigger than us, someone more powerful than us, someone more caring than us to run our lives. And humility is the safest place for each one of us. Do you ever feel your need? Do you ever bump up against your limits? If so, it'll cause you to do some very beneficial things for your soul. If you embrace your limitations, if you feel your need, if you acknowledge your dependence, God wants to invite you into some life-giving practices where he wants to meet you in your need. If you would concede the fact this morning that you're limited, that you're needy, that you're dependent, I wonder how you'd answer this question. As a limited person, what do people most need from you? As a limited person, what do people most need from you? What does your spouse most need from you? What do your kids most need from you? What do your coworkers and employees most need from you? What do your friends and neighbors most need from you? Well, the answer to that question is found in John chapter 15, where Jesus says this, Abide in me and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You are not very good use to your spouse, your kids, your friends, your neighbors, if you are not spending lots of time with Jesus, if you're not abiding in him, abiding is a place of humility, a posture that recognizes you need Jesus if you're to have any hope for fruitfulness and effectiveness in your life. And we can abide in a lot of different ways. One way we abide in Jesus is through reading his word, the Bible. It's there that we come with our dependence. We come with our limitations, asking to be shaped and formed more into humble people, more dependent people. If we want to taste the cool waters of humility, we've got to allow the word to rule over us and not try to rule over the word. We've got to submit our lives to God's word. And by so doing, we're exhibiting humility and living according to our design. We can abide by bringing our needs and desires and requests to God through prayer. Prayer is the language of those who are limited and dependent. You can gauge how dependent and limited you are, in fact, by your prayer life. And that's hard for me to even say because it's so personally convicting. That we don't trust God in prayer because we fool ourselves into thinking that we are in control, that we have it under control. Fool ourselves into thinking that our resources and planning can protect and care for us. Are you ever so desperate that all you can do is pray? That's exactly where we should be most of the time. And lastly, we can abide by staying in community with one another. We need community to see pride, to battle pride. Community can act as a mirror for us that we need in order to see ourselves rightly. Some of you might remember the governor of South Carolina back in 2011 fell into a major moral failure. He was found to be traveling to South America to spend time with a woman that was not his wife. And this man was a believer. And before he was elected governor of South Carolina, he actually attended church pretty regularly, pretty faithfully. And after he was elected governor of South Carolina, friends asked him what church he was going to be a part of. What small group or neighborhood group are you going to join? But as you likely know, he was too busy, too important for community. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. And we tend to treat this as simply good advice and not God's truth. And we do that at our own peril. So what if you find yourself wanting to accept Proverbs' invitation to humility this morning? Have you ever tried to be humble? You wind up being proud of being humble. It's hard to do. So how do we do it? How are we delivered from pride? Well, we're delivered from pride through the gospel. The good news that we could not do what we most needed on our own. We're delivered from pride by embracing the message that highlights our dependence and our limitations. We're given power to live in humility as we acknowledge and confess that we are small and God is big. 
that we are dependent and God is in control, that we are often powerless, but God is all powerful, that we are limited, but he is limitless. And at the heart of this good news, this gospel message is that God has an other orientation. He is constantly concerned about the other, not himself. Amazingly, God himself is humble. This is how Paul describes the humility of God in Philippians 2. He writes this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God and had everything, had everything, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Look, if that is not your story, if that is not your confession, if that is not your hope, then you better be limitless. You better be in control. But if that is your story, if that is your confession, if that's your hope, then it frees you up to embrace your limits. It frees you up to depend on God, to walk in humility towards others. Humility is going to grow as we come to believe more deeply that we have a God who is unlimited yet took on limits. He took on limits. He gave up glory and honor. He took the lowest place so that we might be saved from our illusions of being unlimited. We don't come to Jesus because we have it all together because we have so much to offer, because he's so lucky to have us and needs us. We come to Jesus as needy, limited, dependent people. And the good news for us is that Jesus welcomes those kind of people. Jesus changes and continues to grow those kind of people. Jesus did not come for the healthy. He came for those who know their need. And it's only in humility that we find freedom in life. In our humility, we actually have an opportunity to find Jesus, wisdom and self. And that is a compelling invitation to step into the path of humility that Proverbs invites us to this morning. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that you demonstrated humility for us for the way that you left it all in order to come after us, to pursue us, to show us forgiveness and to give us life. And we pray this morning that you would convince us that we are dependent people, that you would help us to lean into the fact that we are small and you are big, that we are limitless, but you are unlimited. We are limited, but you are limitless. Lord, we pray that that would encourage us to love you and to love our friends and neighbors well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.